Hi, you are listening to ACR 2018 Podcasts. I'm John Cush, Executive Editor of Room Now. This is a compilation of podcasts from the ACR 2018 meeting in Chicago, wherein you'll hear daily reports from the experts, the KOLs, and people making the news. Hope you enjoy the recording. Hi, I'm Cassie Calabrese. I'm here in Chicago at ACR 2018, and I just left the poster hall where there are many excellent abstracts on gout, one in particular by John Boston and Jeffrey Peterson out of Washington and Alaska, looked at the effect of pretreatment pre-treatment with methotrexate on uh, efficacy of pegloticase. They did a prospective proof-of-concept study looking at if you give oral methotrexate 15 milligrams for one month before pegloticase and continue it throughout a treatment, checking uric acid levels every two weeks before pegloticase doses, does this increase the efficacy of pegloticase? As we know, this drug is an excellent option for patients with chronic refractory gout, but its efficacy is limited by development of anti-drug antibodies. So this was a very small study, uh, but they found that they had 100% efficacy, meaning uric acid level for the most part stayed below six. Uh, and with the, with the methotrexate pre-treatment for one month and throughout treatment compared to efficacy of 42% that we know from previous studies. This of course will need follow-up studies, but I found this to be very interesting. And for more, follow us on roomnow.com. Hi, I'm David Liu from Melbourne, Australia, reporting again for Room Now here at ACI 2018 in Chicago. I've just come from a very interesting abstract about yellow fever vaccination in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and I thought it might have some implications for my practice. A lot of my patients want to go to countries which are yellow fever endemic. They might be on immunomodulatory therapy at the time. And the question is always, do we have to, uh, in order to yellow fever, vaccinate these patients because they might need that and to come back, not just to, in terms of preventing the disease, but coming back into the country. Should we withhold the immunomodulation or should we do something else? Should we continue it through? Well, we've had some very useful data from colleagues in Sao Paulo where they have a current yellow fever outbreak and they mandate a yellow fever vaccination. as uh, from Michelle Lopez, who uh, is a rheumato uh, rheumatologist there. She described the experience where they had 159 rheumatic disease patients who received yellow fever vaccination who were on what they called light immunomodulatory therapy. So that really constitutes conventional synthetic DMARDs, no biologics, uh, but methotrexate up to 20, lafunamide up to 20, and, and that, that sort of thing, prednisolone up to 20 as well. Those, out of all those patients, the long and the short of it is that none of those patients ran into any serious problems. They, Followed, they compared them to some healthy controls, 159 matched healthy controls as well. They had similar rates of, of um, cytopenias. The cytopenias were fairly mild and recovered after 30 days. The adverse events were fairly mild as well. Some patients did get some side effects, but really those were short-term things. And most importantly, what we were really worried about, uh, the viscerotrophic disease, the reactivation-like disease that we might see from yellow fever vaccination, we didn't see any occurrences of that as well. So I think we probably do worry too much about our yellow fever, vac uh, about yellow fever vaccine and our rheumatic disease patients. We're naturally cautious people, but at the same time, I think we can be reassured by these data that yellow fever vaccine is a safe option for our patients who are on conventional synthetic DMARDs. I'm David Liu, and go to roomnow.com for any further information. Thank you. My name is Ian Bruce. I'm professor of rheumatology at the University of Manchester in England. 
and I'm here at the ACR 2018 conference in Chicago. There's been a lot of talk this week already about jack inhibitors. We had a wonderful overview today from John O'Shea, who was really one of the basic discoverers of the jack pathway. And over the last 25 years, these drugs have now come into clinical practice and a number of new agents in this class are being trialled and reported at this meeting. Of note, there were several abstracts yesterday talking about upadacitinib, which is a new jack kinase inhibitor that's being trialled in rheumatoid arthritis. The notable results from the upadacitinib trial programme is that first of all, it outperforms methotrexate in early methotrexate-naive patients with rheumatoid arthritis. Also in patients um, with uh, DMARD failures, it actually outperformed adalumumab as, as the primary endpoint of uh, reduction in inflammation and also improved measures of quality of life. So I think there's a lot of exciting um, work ahead on jack kinase inhibitors. I think we need to learn a lot more about the doses and the optimal doses in different diseases. But I think we're, we're hearing really about the rise of the jack inhibitors. And I think we're going to see these becoming increasingly part of the cornerstone treatment of inflammatory rheumatic diseases. If you want to learn anything more um, about the ACR, please go to roomnow.com. Thank you. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. We're here in the booth at ACR 2018 in Chicago. I've gathered a group of friends, experts in the field of ankylosing spondylitis and spondyloarthritis to talk about what's happening here at the meeting. I'm joined by Dr. Jose Sher, Dr. John from New York, Dr. John Ravel from Houston, Dr. Mohammed Asim Khan from Cleveland, and Dr. Jorg Ehrman from Boston to tell us their impressions of the meeting. Why don't we just sort of go down the line and talk about maybe what either what you've seen so far or what you're looking forward to. Because there are a bunch of spondylitis presentations this afternoon and a few tomorrow and whatnot. So, um, Jose, is there something you're looking forward to? I am looking forward to seeing the data on uh, sertolizumab in non-radiographic axial spa. Wow. That's a hot topic. Uh, it appears that the data is robust. Um, I am looking forward to the 17 class in AS and the ICSI data. And I'm looking forward to a few uh, data sets that look at the ways of referring uh, spondyloarthritis earlier, particularly from the German group. And those are the hot topics that I can think of. John, you were involved in the abstract selections. You only have about 1,700 that are on your mind. Right. Uh, although one of the ones uh, that I was most excited by was a plenary session yesterday, which is a presentation from Dr. Matthew Brown's group where they looked at approximately 6,600 uh, uh, European-derived uh, Caucasians, as well as a similar 6,001 uh, Chinese, uh, approximately 800 Turks, and 600 Iranians, uh, and to generate a, a panel of SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms, that taken in, in a sort of a, a, a uh, when looked at together, uh, provides very significant predictive value to make a diagnosis uh, of axial of ankylosing spondylitis in the clinical setting. Uh, it's a it's a large panel of SNPs, and what was ironic, and so the 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 discovery cohort were of course the the six thousand so uh, European derived whites, and the six thousand and one 
uh, East Asians, primarily Chinese. The replication course, of course, the Turks uh, and the Iranians. And it was shocking to, to see that this panel of single nucleotide polymorphisms, a panel that cost about $50, performed equally as well as MRI in establishing a diagnosis in an individual patient. Obviously, uh, applying at a population-based level is a bit more problematic, but given the problems we have making a diagnosis in the clinic, when you have a clinical suspicion, uh, this panel may potentially be of important use. And of course, similar uh, movements are being done in other rheumatic diseases, and probably is a good sign of where the future is going and how genetics can be applied to diagnosis. So, Dr. Khan, you, you know, it's not just B27 now. So, what's your thinking about this advance? Well, um, uh, you can tell me whether how much better it is than just typing for B27. Uh, significantly better, but, but B27 needs to be put into the mix. If you look at the in individual SNPs, like 23andMe uses, for example, uh, the specificity is only about 53%. Uh, but, but the specificity for this uh, is 91, well, 91% in whites, 95% if you look at Asians, okay? And you compare that, and the sensitivity, of course, 83%. And that actually performs much better than the current OSIS criteria. So in African-Americans, 50% of the patients lack B27. Actually, 40%. Yeah, 40%. We, yeah. that's, we, that's published a couple days ago in, uh, we have a paper in arthritis, uh, annals from disease. It's hard to keep up with his papers. Yeah. So over there, uh, how can any test be helpful? The what? They don't have B27. So well, it, it obviously has not been validated. When, what we found looking in African Americans, what was shocking was that HLA-B27 is significantly down in frequency, like we saw in the Chinese and like we saw in the whites. Of course, B27 B, B, uh, is present in 60%, just like you described in 1978. Uh, and we also found a similar impact of, of MAC class 2 genes such as, especially with the HLA-DP locus, and this was seen in whites and blacks. Well, let me rephrase the question. B27 test is helpful, but then it doesn't help when somebody has a disease in the absence of B27. Has you developed or has Matt developed some kind of genetic profile yes. that can predict the... Yes, 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 yes. That's yes. my question. Yes. So, so rephrase this question again. He wanted to know about it, uh, how this applies to making a diagnosis in the B27 negative patient. Right, right. And the answer is it, it works well. Obviously, if you throw in B20, you lose some specificity at that point, but uh, 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 the best specificity is seen when you include B27 in, in the process. But that, uh, that said, you know how many false diagnoses as polymerized you get in B27 positive individuals uh, in the clinical setting. So, your, your, what, what's your comment on this? Yeah, I actually have also a, a, a question, because um, I, I think that uh, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of validating this prospectively. Uh, my question is, how is this going to perform in patients with the wider diagnosis of axial arthritis, not the narrow diagnosis of ankylosing wow. arthritis? Wow, okay. So you know there, there's a publication that, that, that came from the same group, and this is a, this is a study that was commissioned by ASUS. And, uh, the, and, and they looked at, at the top five SNPs, that, in ERAP1, IL-23 receptor, you know, the chromosome 2P gene desert, which is seen in every ethnic group. They looked at all those, and the answer was they, didn't, it did, they looked at approximately 400 patients, and they, 
this, they, the, they did not perform very well in, in, the, in these, and but there were a lot of reasons because there was a lot of heterogeneity uh, between the groups that were referring patients with axial spot, number one. Uh, some, for example, only referred B27 positives, others looked at other criteria for referral. Uh, secondly, and most importantly, it was vastly underpowered. To, most of these SNPs require patient si sample sizes of up to 1,000 and more before you, because we're dealing with odds ratios of 1.1, 1.2, before you really see the association. So with a panel, with, with, a, with 350 patients, it's not surprising right. that you're not going to have the power to really see this. So I, I, I think it was a combination of heterogeneity in the AXPA group, as well as power that, that caused it not to perform very well. And I think to make this, this to use this panel, it's going to have to be refined a bit more before we can get to the non-radiographic uh, axial spot peak. So I want to get to, um, York, tell us what thing you're looking forward to at this meeting, and same thing, Dr. Khan, just tell us what you're looking forward to, or what you've seen so far that excites you. Yeah, so I think uh, something that I would highlight is uh, uh, an effort that was discussed yesterday in the spondyloarthritis uh, study uh, uh, section. Um, and that is a study that's going to start next year called Classic. And that's a combined effort of Spartan and ASAS. Uh, and this study, the goal of this study is to validate the existing classification criteria for exospinal arthritis uh, in a thousand patients worldwide. Uh, and this will generate a lot of data. If the criteria are not good enough, this will also provide a lot of data to improve them in the future, and I think that's a very important. This is like the ideal use of a study group and bring coming together at the ECR. Dr. Khan, is there anything that you're looking forward well, to? My main interest is to see how we can prevent syndesmal fine formation and ultimate ankylosis. The data or interleukin 17 inhibitor, secretinumab, looked pretty good. Four years, they were 80% of the patients did not show progression, and Jose and I are interested in exactly new map also and so my hope is that now that we can control inflammation pretty well we hope to prevent bony fusion right. and that flexibility retention will improve functional abilities of the patient so, so that's the next hurdle we have to so two uh, things i want to end with one is a discussion of aisle 17 and where we are and two to go back to the non-radiographic axial spots but first IL-17 and where we are, we're going to have the three-year uh, extension data on the secukinumab study in AS. That's going to be presented today. Uh, and we're also going to hear about ixekizumab, another IL-17 inhibitor in ankylosing spondylitis. That's going to be presented today. And an axial spot. And an axial spot. An axial non-radiographic, yes. Right. That's right. So where, where are we with this? This is all very encouraging. Is it changing the paradigm? Um, and what's the hope for uh, IL-17 inhibition going forward? Jose. Uh, I'm not so sure it's changing the paradigm. This is what we expected based on prior uh, data. I think what's changing is, just to summarize the discussion, is going as early as possible on the treatment of these conditions, where we can not only predict who is going to develop, but have actionable uh, therapeutic strategies. The question is, who amongst those that are currently classified as non-radiographic axial spa are the ones that will eventually go on to the osteoproliferative pathway. Okay, I'm interested in the fact that prebiotics, probiotics, antibiotics uh, don't yet have any clinical role, 
But what would be your protection since you are working on gut microbiome? Um, would there be a way to handle that aspect of trigger or control inflammation at early stage? Well, there's a very interesting presentation today on trafficking of cells from the gut to the joint. That's our session. Yes, yes. so that's going to be really exciting. Just give a preview of that. Uh, the fundamental question of whether or not modulation of the gut microbes can prevent or delay the appearance of systemic inflammation. That's a challenging one. The field is also moving towards something called pharmacomicrobiomics. Can we use our gut microbes to predict or modulate our current therapies so we can improve outcomes at the time where we can also prevent adverse events? That's fascinating, and it's coming this afternoon. But I think one thing that I, I think is important to point out that we've learned only recently is that the, the actual microbes that are associated uh, with disease tends to vary a great deal from center to center, from ethnic group to ethnic group. And probably it's not the issue of the bug, but the pathway, that the, 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 what is actually happening. It is about the enzymatic capabilities of the bugs that could be exactly the same with a different name on the bug. Different bug, yeah. Different bug, same, same, mechanism. same mechanism. So I want to end with... Um, the story about non-radiographic exospog, accepted nomenclature by all you experts, just not have to, just not necessarily popular in, in America as it is in, in Europe and outside of America. Uh, and it failed as an indication with two companies going in front of the FDA a few years ago, but one company has taken it forward and they have a study today on non-radiographic exospog. My question is, is America ready to actually start using the term and treating patients as such, as opposed to what they've been doing, which is probably what we call creative coding, calling it something else. Well, he wants to make America great again, right? Right. In 1985, I described this entity, I called it spondylitic disease without radiographic evidence of sacroiliitis. So the word spondylitic disease is actually better than spondylitis or spondyloarthritis, just like rheumatoid arthritis, we call it rheumatoid disease. The, the disease has a wider spectrum, not just musculoskeletal, but uh, extraskeletal as well. So that particular entity is now called, we call it non-radiographic exospondylitis, but it is a very wide spectrum. Maybe most of the people with non-radiographic exospondylitis may not develop sacroiliac. Right. And just like lupus, many have uh, ANA positivity, they may get thrombocytopenia, but they may never develop. So the whole field of uh, and non-radiographic excess there's so much heterogeneity that it is a big problem for FDA to really uh, readily approve that indication. Well, we'll see, but I think it's, it's important about, you know, the studies that are done, that's important. You're, you, uh, you come from Germany where, obviously, you, you, you know, it's very well accepted. What's your impressions of how we consider non-radiographic excess spa here? And my personal opinion is, I, I, I think that uh, Axiospondyloarthritis is something, it's a valuable category. I'm not so sure about the category of non-radiographic because this, this is a very difficult term that is also very confusing um, because the difference between non-radiographic disease and radiographic disease is uh, very blurry. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think that, that, that still needs some discussion whether uh, we should use that qualifier non-radiographic or just say Excellent final comments on that. Yes, the fact of the matter is that only if you look at insurance databases, 
Only 14% of people with chronic back pain in the United States ever see a rheumatologist. If you look at those with onset between the ages of 20 and 29 years, it's 9%. So the problem here is that low back pain affects 19.4%, according to NHANES, of the U.S. population between the ages of 20 and 70. These people, if you look at the concept of axial spinal arthritis, it is virtually unknown outside of the rheumatology community. And these people aren't getting the rheumatologist. So this is probably represents one of the biggest challenges and unmet needs that we face in this country, is dealing with the issue of chronic back pain, inflammatory back pain, which occurs in 7% of the population, and axial spinal arthritis. The point being also that if we did this right, we'd be diagnosing people earlier and we, as experts, wouldn't be seeing people at the supermarket or in the airport who have spondylitis who have never been diagnosed. Jose? The counter-argument to that is the pharmacoeconomics. How many people that will never develop true inflammatory osteoproliferative axial spondyloarthritis will see biologic therapies that are only skyrocketing? And how many of the indirect costs that are given that back pain is the leading cause of disability in the United States would we be saving by diagnosing those people earlier? Obviously, challenges ahead. Thanks for tuning in to this panel on spondylitis. I want to thank my panel for their expert opinions. Enjoy the meeting. Thank you. Hi, I'm Jack Bush with Room Now. We're here in the Room Now booth at ACR 18. And I'm talking with AJ Narula, uh, Dr. AJ Narula from Eli Lilly and Company. Um, I asked AJ to come by today to talk about uh, basically the issue of drug development. You know, the, this is sort of an issue that we're seeing more and more new drugs. And the drugs themselves start out with an indication uh, and then they go on to have their old life. So, um, well, would you tell us your approach at Eli Lilly on drug development, just in general as a start, when you're looking at, well, we know phase one, phase two, phase three, but what, what's behind the scenes that maybe the women college doesn't know about? Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, we, when we start thinking about um, future drugs for development, um, you know, one of the first things that comes to mind is where, where are the unmet needs for the patients? So what, what diseases do we still need to develop drugs for where there are no good therapies? And for existing diseases, where can we improve the standard of care? So that's the first step as we start to go through the drug development and selection process. The next, I think, is a really deep, trying to have a really deep understanding of the biological pathways that, are, that drive the disease. So that helps drive us towards, so, you know, which pathways we want to target with specific drugs. And one, one good, good thing now is that we've have developed some therapies already in rheumatology and autoimmune diseases, we can now go back to some of our biological samples from previous trials and we can probe which pathways are amplified in the disease that helps us pick some new targets. We can also look at which uh, pathways um, serve as a marker for you know, non-response. We can try and understand, therefore, which pathways we should go after to help those patients who aren't responding to existing therapies. So at the company level, when you're making these decisions, you really I like the idea of unmet need and understanding the pathogenesis and having biomarkers. Um, that applies to um, common diseases and rare diseases as well. Yeah. Um, so Lily has been a leader in diabetes, osteoporosis, now rheumatoid arthritis, and psoriatic disease. Mm -hmm. um, um, and that's a makes sense to go down that path. Yeah. Um, how does a company consider rare diseases, often diseases, because same things exist there. There's really an unmet need. You yep. often do understand the pathogenesis. 
Um, is that something companies are thinking more about? We are. I mean, you know, even though diseases may be rare, you know, for those patients, it, it, it's, an, it's an important, uh, you know, it can be really, some of these diseases can be really catastrophic. So we are looking very closely at those diseases, again, trying to understand the biological drivers. So we look at a number of things, biomarkers, genetic markers of disease. And so sometimes we'll come up with a target that might be fit well for a very rare disease. And we will actually, you know, in, in, especially in the future, really consider studying those diseases as a you know, proof of biological principle. And, you know, that's that it's an important unmet need to meet, even though the disease may be rare. I mean, it's something that's important to rheumatologists. Yeah. We are all very good at the common disorders, but right. we have to be good at the uncommon ones as well. Right, so right. We like it when we see you know, breakthrough status for yeah. conditions. Absolutely. Like that um, so once you take a product to market, like as you recently have, um, it's, a, it's an exciting time. There's a lot of opportunity for education and whatnot. The growth of a product I've seen over the years is often dependent upon the first indication, but also then subsequent indication. Absolutely. Yeah. So, how is, is there a strategy involved in basically finding your audience, finding the best patient? Maybe your primary indication for a new drug, let's say, is rheumatoid arthritis. Yeah. You know, finding what's the subset of rheumatoid arthritis, and then are there other diseases? So, what's the strategy of the thinking there? Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, as we develop a drug, that tends to be a lead indication, but. After you've got a proof of principle, a proof of concept with that lead indication, now even before a drug comes to market, we start thinking about where else you could, it could go and where else it could help patients. And, and so that process starts early. And, you know, we, are, we, we now like to actually already be evaluating it in other diseases, even by the time the first, disease, the first uh, um, you know, the drug is, is out there for the first disease. And, again, I think it fundamentally comes down to the biology. We look at overlapping biology between these diseases. We... Um, and, and we try and understand where the drug could fit other diseases. So it's, uh, I think it's largely driven by the biology and where we think we can make a big difference. Yeah. It also, to me, seems like it's often driven by anecdotalism, meaning that, you know, unbeknownst to you or even without your plans, yeah. you know, people start trying other conditions and you discover that yeah. IL-17 condition uh, might work in something else, yeah. or the JAK condition works in alopecia areata, yeah. for instance, and like that. And then, obviously, there's probably investigators who should they grant. Absolutely, like yes, yes. Um, so, in the end, you know, the other, the back side of all this is the safety side. Yeah. Um, and... Has um, the FDA changed much of what, what it's done? Have REMS programs become important um, to every company and every product, or only some companies and some products? Well, REMS being risk yeah, mitigation absolutely. programs. Absolutely. Well, I, I mean, I, th I think uh, you, you know one of the key things when we develop a therapy is we want to deliver meaningful efficacy for the patient, but it has to also safety is tantamount, and we want drugs to have a good benefit risk profile. So. You know, I, th I think it, it, our approach at Lilly is we want to work closely with the regulatory agencies to do the right things for patients. And if a, if a REMS approach is appropriate, you know, we work closely with the agency to put that in place and really to continue to understand the safety as we take a drug into market. So it's a, it's a collaborative thing, I think. And lastly, I want to ask about the challenge of educating the docs. Yeah. You know, the docs, um, sometimes your education is by experience and by... Uh, happenstance as opposed to maybe something that's better thought out. So how do you best educate docs about new products that are in the market, new indications, whatnot? They'll hear it. Yeah. Often, you know, they're very comfortable in what they're already doing. Yeah. You know, they've yeah. read out a few other drugs that they can use. How do they get knowledgeable about a new product when it comes to the market? 
Yeah, well, you know, when a drug comes to market uh, and it's early in its uh, its life cycle, you know, what we try and do is is some you know there's a lot of data that comes out of a phase three program, for example, and and so what we try and do and at meetings like ACR is really present um, some of our sub analyses of the data to really, you know, you know, make some clear points about what we do understand about a drug, and we we do understand that you know. When you finish a phase three program, you know, there's, there's still a lot to learn as a drug comes into market. As we need, you, you need thousands of patients of years of experience to really fully understand drug. But we, we try, on, you know, on a regular basis to share what we have learned about specific uh, aspects of drug from its efficacy to its safety profile. So it's, it's an iterative process, I think, where we continue to try and share what we've, we're learning about a drug as it moves through its life, life cycle and make sure that clinicians have the most up-to-date information. Yeah, that that uh, reintroducing the trial in maybe a different way, yeah. I think it's really valuable. Yeah. Yeah. And most people have initial knowledge that gets supported, and ultimately they, there's a tipping point and they get a comfort level. So that's kind of mm -hmm. good news. Yeah. Okay, thanks for coming by. Good to see you, Jack. Sir. Take care. Bye. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. And I want to tell you about the best thing I saw today. It's abstract 1657 by Philip Hellowell, and it's entitled Guselcomab and the Treatment of Enthesitis. This is a phase two trial of Guselcomab uh, against placebo in patients with active psoriatic arthritis. To get into the study, they had to have greater than three tender and swollen joints. Uh, and it turns out that 72% of the 149 patients had enthesitis at entry. Using enthesitis as an endpoint, looking at the Leeds Enthesitis Index, they basically saw significant reductions in enthesitis by week eight in those treated with guselcomab, the IL-23 inhibitor. Overall, there was a 50% of the patients who actually resolved their enthesitis while on therapy, obviously much better than those on placebo. And it turns out that enthesitis seems to parallel a lot of the other activity measures seen with psoriatic arthritis. So enthesitis responses tended to be better in patients who were ACR20 responders. Enthesitis scores tended to correlate with other activity and, and inflammatory indices in patients with psoriatic arthritis. Enthesitis is a significant challenge for the rheumatologist and having drugs that will work very well uh, in this arena are very important. So this is important and I think it's one of the important things I've seen today. That's it. Tune in for more at Room Now. I'm Dr. Janet Pope. I'm a room reporter here at ACR 2018 in Chicago at the Room Now booth. I wanted to tell you about an abstract that was presented as a poster, number 1252, by Dr. Kareem Ladakh. Uh, he trained uh, in Canada and in Hospital for Special Surgery. He basically did a study looking at how good we are, or possibly are not, at doing TB testing prior to initiation of a TNF inhibitor. He found that less than 60% of patients, 50-some percent, had TB testing done prior to TNF initiation. And of course, rheumatologists better, did it better than the gastroenterologists who are using the TNF inhibitors for inflammatory bowel disease. So there's a couple things that strike me. Um, in general, my practice is not to do a TB skin test prior to every single drug. So if I've done it a year before and I have a low risk patient, I'm not gonna retest it. So he might have looked in too short a window. But I think the bottom line is we have to remember TB reactivation can occur and we have to follow the guidelines. Thanks and thanks for listening.
I'm Jonathan Kay coming to you from ACR 2018 in Chicago for RoomNow.com. I just heard a terrific talk by Kat Liao from the Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston speaking on behalf of the RISE Registry looking at the prescription of biosimilars in the United States over the past year. She looked at data from the RISE Registry and compared prescriptions of reference infliximab, Remicade, to that of the biosimilar infliximab, Inflectra. They found no incidences of the biosimilar infliximab Renflexis having been entered into the registry, and they found that about 2% of infliximab prescriptions were for the biosimilar. The vast majority of prescriptions were patients who had previously been treated with the reference product, Remicade, who had been transitioned to the biosimilar. The data came from community practices, not solo practices and not academic centers, which is quite reasonable given that academic centers have not had available biosimilar infliximab because of pricing issues. The practices in Georgia and Nevada were the greatest prescribers of biosimilar infliximab, although there are very few practices in Nevada that were participating in the RISE registry. In the rest of the country, the prescriptions for the most part were less than 1% uh, biosimilar prescription, but these data are the first data to look at biosimilar infliximab prescription in the United States and certainly parallel the estimate of about 2% market penetration that has been in the public domain for biosimilar infliximab DYYB or Inflectra. More to come from these uh, data in RISE registry in the next year or so, looking at future trends in biosimilar prescription. Uh, for more information, uh, go to roomnow.com. I'm Jonathan Kay and look forward to seeing you again tomorrow. Hi, this is Naomi Schlesinger reporting from the ACR 2018 regarding gout. An abstract I really liked today was the Pagloda case trial using methotrexate to prevent antibodies and flares. Uh, in previous studies of Pagloda case, we've seen infusion reactions in up to 26% of patients. However, the triple trials haven't quite shown that, and only one out of 315 actually had an infusion reaction. But here we have two rheumatologists, both actually, interestingly, presidents of their uh, state associations. We did this trial looking at methotrexate a month before. They used 15 milligrams a day for a month before starting pagodicase, and there, then six to nine months later. And basically showed in the nine patients that they conveyed in this abstract that there were no infusion reactions in these patients. Thus, here we have a new modality, an immunosuppressant that should be maybe used with uh, pagodicase to decrease infusion reactions. Other um, medications are also being tried and used for pagodicase now in trials. Uh, if you want more information, look at Room Now. Thank you.